Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis 2, verses 23 through 25, 3, verses 1 through 10, and 4, verse 1. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin. I am the lead pastor here at the church. And if you are new here, it is a very exciting time for us as a church. We have bought a new building at 1811 18th Street in Bettendorf. And we are currently remodeling that building with the hopes of moving into it the second week of August. Yes, well, this past, this past week, we got a lot of work done on the basement floors. And it's already beginning to look like a totally new building. So we're pretty excited. Uh, we bought this building because we needed a building where our families can worship God together under one roof. Right now, we, have, we are worshiping God under three roofs, uh, times that by two, two services, and our youth have another building on Wednesday nights. So that's a lot of roofs. That's a lot of separation. We want to come together and worship God under one roof together. And we also wanted a building that would act as a strategic base for us to reach our neighbors and to reach our city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe this building is going to enable us to do both. So the sanctuary, the, the fire department told us this week that the sanctuary is rated for 504 people. All right. So I'm going to try to squeeze that many in there. All right. They, they say we can do it. Let's try it. Right. So we're going to be, have about 500 people. I think we have 497 chairs. So that's going to be, we'll squeeze them in. Uh, We've got nine or 10 classrooms, depends on how we break them up, that can serve between 150 and 200 kids. So we are really excited about what this church, this church building is going to do for us. We've got a large youth room in the basement with a full kitchen. And um, this building is strategically located just minutes off of I-74 that God has answered all of our prayers. Everything that we asked him for, um, God has answered our prayers and we are just really, really excited about that. Um, if you don't know, we are currently raising funds and raising money to remodel this building in our advanced capital campaign. And just from our members, we, have our, we already have over $550,000 pledged over the next three years. And so today we're going to open that up. Anybody else that is just attending, just call Sacred City their home. You're not quite a member yet. And you want to get in on this ground floor of investing in the mission of God here in the Quad Cities. There are little advanced capital campaigns cards at the welcome area. You can pick one of those up, fill it out. You can give it to me or drop it in the giving box. And we would love for you to make a commitment with us 
to give sacrificially over the next few years. We hope that we can remodel. I mean, our, the, the, the project, as in most remodeling projects, just kind of continues to grow. We were just going to do the foyer, and now it looks like, by God's grace, we might be able to get to remodel the entire building uh, before we move in. So that is pretty exciting around here. Uh, now, there's also another reason. It's an exciting time to be at Sacred City right now for the last couple years, really ever since COVID, God has had us in a season of deep discipleship. He's been leading us uh, into this season and teaching us a lot. We've had to walk through some really difficult and trying seasons together, and our roots have been forced down deep. That's, basic, that's been really hard for all of us, but it's also been really good for us as a church. It's prepared us for what God is about to do now. This next season seems that the Lord is leading us to a season of outward growth, a season of expansion. This is going to be a season of evangelism, and we're going to see a lot of new people come to our church, and we, have, uh, we want to be really hospitable to them and really welcoming as they come and join us. But we want them to know right away what we are all about here at Sacred City. That's why next week we are beginning a year-long study in the Gospel of John. And John is the only gospel that just straight up tells us what its purpose statement is. And his purpose statement is this. He says this, These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So when people come to our church, we want them to meet Jesus. We want them to meet the real Jesus, the Jesus that's revealed to us in the scriptures, the Jesus who is the Son of God, not the Jesus of the, the figment of their imagination or the piecemeal Jesus that they've heard from a few professors and a few YouTubers and they put this Jesus together as a caricature and they've got this Jesus that they've rejected in their mind. No, we want them to meet the real Jesus because when you meet him and you believe in him, he gives you life right? Life in his name, eternal life, and of course, uh, life and life more abundantly in this life as well. And so that's why we're uh, going to be working through the gospel of John. We're spending a year to get better acquainted with Jesus, and we start that next week. So that means this is a great opportunity for you to invite your friends, invite your neighbors and family members that you've been praying for. We've got a new sermon series starting next week, and we've got a new building on the way, Man, there's a lot to be excited about, and I might just explode. It's also just, man, I, I just want to say, it's, it's, it's my absolute pleasure and joy in life to serve as your pastor. You are a blessing to serve. I'm so thankful the way that you serve our church, you love our church, you serve Jesus' mission. It is just, man, it thrills my heart, and I'm, I'm just really thankful to be your pastor, and I love you very much, and that's all I got to say about that, and we're going to get on with it, all right? So... Let me pray for us, and we're going to start this, uh, this last sermon in our Origins series. Father, we come before you this morning in desperate need of your inspiration, your revelation, your word. We believe that your word gives life. We believe that your word is the word that spoke everything into existence, and your one word from God can change everything about us. And so Today, we invite you to speak. Father, I, as a sinful man who needs the grace of Jesus as much as anyone, I ask that you would literally think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords this morning. That it would be all of you and none of me. I ask that your people would hear your voice, a voice, the voice of a man they would not follow, but the voice of the good shepherd they would. So God, would you help me this morning in a, in a topic that's fraught with difficulty and pain and frustration and fear? Uh, would you help me bring light into a dark place? Would you bring healing where we've been wounded and where we've sinned against you and we've been broken? Uh, we ask that you do this for the glory of your name and the good of your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, as I said last week and gave you the forewarning, I don't see too many children in here, so most of us took that warning to heart. We are talking about sexuality from a Christian worldview today. Now, over the past 12 weeks, We've been working through this series we've called Origins, studying the first three chapters of the Bible. And of course, sex and sexuality has come up a few times already. And I'm going to try not to repeat myself very much this morning. Today's sermon, as the last in the sermon series, is really, it's kind of a junk drawer sermon in one sense. It's all the questions that you said, well, but what about this, Justin? Well, what about this? Well, what about this? When it comes to sexuality, I'm going to try to answer as many of those questions as I can. 
So I'm going to start with this. Just what is the Bible or what is God's view of sex? What's it for? Now, we all come from different backgrounds. We all come from different cultures. Even those of us who grew up in, in America here, we've come from different uh, backgrounds and different you know, cultures when it comes to, and they answered that question a little differently. We have a, probably more than likely, everybody in here is somewhere on the spectrum of this. Sex is really bad. It's really gross. It's really evil. To sex is the best thing in life and it deserves all your attention and all, all of your worship. And basically, I would imagine all of us fall somewhere on that spectrum today. And you come in and you think the Bible teaches some things or says some things or you've got some ideas when it comes to sex. But what I want to do is I want to kind of show us from the scriptures God's view of sex. And I think it's going to be a little eye-opening for many of us. We're going we're gonna to start not with our scripture reading this morning. We're actually going to start in the book of Proverbs. So if you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Proverbs chapter 5. And let's just start with a good old smack in the face, okay? Here it is. This is we're going to start Proverbs chapter 5. But we're going to start in verse 15. And this is a father writing to his son, inspired by God, of course, and this is what he's, and he's speaking specifically to the topic of sexuality. And he's going to use some analogies here. And he says this in verse 15 to his son. Drink water from your own cistern. Now this is an analogy or a metaphor for a, a young man to only have sexual relations with his wife. And let's keep reading. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? So you can't just have sex with anybody. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. You might want to highlight that. I'm just throwing that out there. Be intoxicated always in her love. Be intoxicated always with her love. Now, I wanted to start with that verse today because many of us think that God is a prude. We think that the Bible is outdated and sexually repressive. Nearly everywhere in our culture, you hear that we need to, if we want to really live our best life, we need to throw off our puritanical notions about sex. Now, there's several problems with that statement, and I wish I could just unpack them all for you right now, but I don't have time. One is that the Puritans were Bible guys and gals. They loved their Bible, and the Bible has an incredibly high view of sex. The Bible is not prudish one bit. This text here is how a father speaks to his son about sex, Right? I'll just say this. This is how a father 2,700 years ago talked to his son about sex. Sex is, let me paraphrase. Son, sex is for your wife. Don't use it with anybody else. Let your wife's breasts fill you all times with delight. Enjoy them, son. Get drunk on your wife's love. God is watching. That's what he says. That's what he's saying there, right? Man, I bet you right now, 21st century you are more prudish with your sons than this, aren't you? I know I am. This makes me squirm a little bit. I, I, I questioned whether I was gonna use this text right off the jump this morning, okay? My wife told me not to. I disobeyed her, okay? <laughs> I sent three of my five kids off to kids ministry this morning so I didn't make lunch that awkward, Okay? Listen, listen, we might be prudes, but the Bible is not prudish. Therefore, if we have come to believe that God has lame views of sex and sexuality, we need to reread the book. Look at this text. If you think God is prude, you need to reevaluate the historical evidence here in the book of Proverbs. And if you want more, just go read the Song of Solomon. I'll read the Song of Solomon. Now, there have many, listen, there have been many prudes among God's people. 
but God is not one of them. And when we understand his teaching about sex, we won't be one either. What we're going to learn today is that God actually has a cosmically high view of sex. And we're going to get to that in a little bit. But right now, I want you to see that Christian men here are commanded, were commanded by God to be drunk, intoxicated on our wife's love. And we're commanded by God to enjoy her. We are commanded to drink deeply from our wife's well until we are drunk and to be completely satisfied in her and in her body, in our sexual relationship. And if you are shocked by that right now, if you are squirming in your seat, it's because you don't know this stuff was in the Bible. Let me just say, this stuff is all over the Bible. The Bible is full of erotic imagery like this. And if this is a shock to you, and just be honest, you just don't know your Bible very well. And that means you more than likely have all kinds of notions about God and ideas about sex and sexuality that are actually just stereotypes you've picked up from the culture. Most of the people who laugh at the Bible and they think it's some ridiculously outdated book have actually never read it. And the ones that do or have read it once, they don't understand it. They don't understand what it teaches. But when you do get in and you start studying the Bible, when, it's, when it teaches on sex, it's not just all rosy. It's not, not just all, you know, sex is good and sex is cosmically high and all these different things. It also says sex is also incredibly dangerous. We see this in, here in the Proverbs as well. I'm gonna go ahead and read one through 14 real quick. He, he says this to his son, my son, be attentive to my wisdom and incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. Look, for the lips of a forbidden or foreign woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil but in the end she is as bitter as wormwood sharp as a two-edged sword her feet go down to death her steps follow the path to Sheol she does not ponder the path of life her ways wander and she does not know it and now O sons listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth keep your way far from her and do not go to the door of her house lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. He says, you, and you say, how I hated discipline and how my heart despised reproof, reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ears to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled, assembled congregation. Here a father is saying, son, sex isn't just beautiful. It isn't just good. Sex is also dangerous. And if you follow it and you partake in it in certain ways, it can lead you into destruction. It can lead you into poverty. It can lead you into all kinds of pain. He says several times, sex outside of the covenant of marriage, if I could talk this morning, is dangerous. It's to be avoided at all costs and it will destroy him if he gives into it. Now, why is that the case? If sex is good and intended for pleasure and happiness and joy, why cannot, can it not be shared with whoever we want to share it with? Let me attempt to answer that question in two ways. First, we'll go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, the scripture that's been really familiar to us. Let's read, it, let's read it again, 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, look, to his wife. And they shall become <clears throat> one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now, why does the male anatomy fit perfectly into a female? Because God designed it that way, that's why. What's it for though? What's its purpose? Well, one is obviously to make babies. There's only one way for children to be created and that's when a male sperm must meet a female egg. But if you look closer in our text this morning, there's a lot more there. Before they have sexual relations, before they consummate their union together, look what comes first. We see marriage. And I've done a whole sermon on that, so I'm not going to reiterate that too much. He says, leave your father, father and mother and hold fast 
to your wife. That means cleave to, be deeply united with each other. So think about that. Marriage is the uniting, the bonding of the total personhood of a male and a female. It is saying to God in a covenant ceremony, it's saying to God, your family in the watching world, I am exclusively hers and she is exclusively mine. The families that used to define us don't define us anymore. We are something new. We are a new family unit. I am giving myself and committing myself completely to this person. My money is hers. My family is hers. My love is hers. My emotions are hers. My future is hers. Everything I have in this life, everything I am is now hers and I am promising to be faithful to her no matter what or who comes into my life in the future. Then inside of this environment of safety and security and lifelong commitment, now we do with our bodies what we have already done with the rest of our lives. We consummate the marriage. We are naked and vulnerable and we literally become one flesh. So sex is meant to be a bond, a lifelong bond between a husband and wife in an exclusive and permanent relationship the Bible calls marriage. It's a powerful act that is meant to unite us body and soul. It's meant to deepen our love and our commitment and our enjoyment of one another. And this is why it's so dangerous outside of the covenant of marriage. See, our culture lies to us about sex every single day, multiple times a day. It says sex is nothing more than a biological instinct. It tries to reduce sex down to something casual. It's just two bodies coming together, nothing more. It's just like a handshake, no big deal. But that's a lie. There's no such thing as casual sex. Genesis chapter four, verse one, listen how the Bible describes sex. Many people miss this. It says this, now Adam knew Eve, his wife. And she conceived and bore Cain. Adam knew Eve. The Hebrew word there is yada. And it it does, it means a knowing, a deep intimacy. It's when the Bible describes the act of sex as knowing, it is teaching us that sex is a lot more than just two bodies coming together. It is deeply personal. It's Soul, it's a soul connecting act that is meant to bond us body and soul to another person. So the world says, no, sex is just a biological instinct. It's just biological. That's all it is. And the Bible says, no, 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 that's not true. Sex is emotional. Sex is deeply personal. It's meant to involve our heart. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's talking about the seat of basically the seat of the person, right? It's talking about our mind, our will, our emotions. This way of knowing another person is one of the deepest ways to know someone. Now, it's interesting because biologists tell us that the same hormone or, or chemical that is released when a mother nurses her baby, oxytocin, and that we know that, that when, when a mother releases that hormone while she's nursing her child, it forms a deep bond between mother and child. Quite frankly, a bond that even fathers will never have. Well, during sexual intercourse, a woman's body releases that same chemical. It literally bonds them at a chemical level. And for a man, this chemical, and this is called vasopressin, and it's released, and some uh, biologists have actually called this the monogamy molecule the monogamy molecule, that sex is designed to bond us all the way down to our biochemistry. So follow the science, right? Follow the science here, right? Casual sex is anti-science. 
when people who aren't married are having sex with each other, it's in a, it's a volatile, it's a completely unsafe environment for this type of bonding, and it deeply damages their own soul, but it also damages human flourishing as a society. See, our body and our souls are not designed to do this type of bonding with a bunch of people in an environment that isn't safe and lifelong. Sex outside of marriage hurts us deeply and scars our souls. The Bible says it can even harden our hearts. It can darken our minds and it can turn us away from the living God to follow idols. So sex was created to unite and bond one man and one woman in a permanent and exclusive covenant called marriage. When sex is used in any other way, it is damaging and destructive. But the second reason Christians don't have sex with just anyone other than their spouse is that marriage and sex is meant to be an analogy of the gospel. And I went into this pretty deeply already, so I'm just going to kind of skim over it this morning. But if you could open up your Bibles or turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, I can remind us of what the scripture says here in verses 22, or 20, yeah, 25 through 33. He says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish, in the same way. So Jesus loved us one way. Husbands, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of, bot, of his body. Therefore, he, he quotes Genesis here. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. In the, in the Greek there, this says this mega mystery. This is a mega mystery. And here's the mega mystery. It refers to Christ and the church. It refers to to Christ and the church. Paul is saying marriage and sex are an analogy of the way that Jesus loves, cares for, and provides for, and saves all of us. And all throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, marriage is used as an analogy of our relationship with God. And sexual intercourse even is used as an analogy. Idolatry is seen as sexual immorality as well. That God here, like a good husband, like the perfect husband, pursues us. That God has made a covenant with us. God has been faithful to that covenant and has never broken it, even though we have over and over and over again. But what does God do when we are unfaithful to our covenant? God sends Jesus to come down and again, pursue us again and to save us from our sins. And Jesus, as the perfect husband, comes and lays his life down for us in order to make us his bride and to cleanse us from all of our sins. So when God uses sex as an analogy of the gospel, one thing he's trying to teach us is that the sheer joy and rapture and euphoria of sex is similar to what it's going to be like when we get to heaven, when we are fully united with Christ. Now, my brain can hardly get around this. Theologians have called this the beatific vision. The moment when our eyes actually can lock on to the glory of God in Jesus Christ. When we really get to see Jesus in his glory and we are fully united to him, it's going to be better than the best sex on earth. Think about that. Sex is one of the most glorious experiences our culture, or this world, let's say, has to offer. That's why we are so obsessed with it. But for the Christian, sex is just the appetizer before something better. Seeing Jesus and being united to him in the new heavens and the new earth will be better than sex. Well, how so? Well, think about sex. That day, 
when Christians meet Jesus face to face, we will be stripped bare. We will stand before us and he will see all the way through us. He will know us better than we know ourselves. Why? Because we forget about things and God doesn't. He, will rem- he remembers, he can remember everything, right? So he will know us better than we know ourselves. But in all of his knowing, if you are in Christ, in all of God's knowing, God will also love us all the way down because he has made us righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. That means we will be fully known and fully loved. The lights will be completely on and we will be completely bare and yet we will be completely accepted by the holy God who created us. No shame. See, what do we see in Genesis chapter three? As soon as they sin, they realize they're naked, they hide, they they try to cover themselves, they run and hide from God. Not when we meet Jesus. If we're in Christ, not when we meet Jesus. No more shame. No more posturing. No more trying to hide our bad sides or keep that part of our personality hidden and locked away in that dark closet, right? Nope, it will all be laid bare before the God to whom we must give account and God will wash us clean of it all. See, sex is a parable of the gospel. No shame, no posturing, no trying to hide our bad sides. Pure joy, absolute bliss to be accepted and loved in spite of our sin by the one who made us. It's nakedness and acceptance inside an exclusive and permanent union to be cleansed and washed and sanctified and loved for eternity even though we don't deserve it by Jesus. Jesus, friends, is better than sex. And listen, this is gonna be good news for us. This is good news for us in a lot of different ways. One, it's good news for us because our culture lies and tells us sex is the reason of, for life. It says there's nothing better than sex and so what you should do is just live for your, se- your sexual expression. That's what you should live for. Well, obviously then, if that's true and if you are a Christian and you aren't married, then there's supposedly, therefore, no way for you to ever live a fulfilled life. Well, that, friends, that is a lie, right? Jesus himself was fulfilled. Jesus was the son of God. Jesus was eternally happy. Jesus had a joyful life. Jesus lived a satisfying life. And Jesus, of course, was, sim- was single and never had sex. So for the single person, they need to know that Jesus is better than sex. If they never get married and they never have sex, they're only missing out on the appetizer, The full meal, the entree is still on the way. That's life with God. Secondly, this is also when we know that Jesus is better than sex, it's also good news for us who struggle with our sexuality, which is all of us, by the way. All of us struggle. I debated if I wanted to use that word. So what do I mean by that? We all have been sinned against. We all sin we all have the flesh, right? That, so we struggle in a lot of different ways. And, and this sermon really is me walking through a minefield and trying not to get my legs blown off, okay? That's, that's what it is. Because all of us have came from a lot of different backgrounds. Some of us haven't been abused. Some of us have been trafficked. Some of us have been, we've, we've believed lies. There's all kinds of people in this room today and in, in, our, next, in our next service as well. And you've been hurt, wounded by sin. And some of you have, been, have done the hurting and have done the wounding. And so we need to know that Jesus is actually better than our sexuality. And Jesus can actually redeem us in our sexuality. He can heal us. Because married sex is an analogy of the gospel. It has all kinds of latent power in it. Sex is incredibly powerful. It's, the Bible uses this. It says, it's like a fire. 
And of course, if you keep that fire in a fireplace, if you keep that fire in a, in a furnace, that fire is wonderful, right? It can bring heat and joy and comfort to your home. But as soon as that fire gets outside of the fireplace or outside of the furnace, you have a great problem, right? It brings all kind of damage and destruction to everything it touches. Proverbs says, can a man carry fire next to his chest and not be burned? Well, that's what we try to do every day when we sin against God sexually. Many of us have felt that damage that is wrought when the fire gets out of the fireplace. We've been hurt by sex in a myriad of different ways. And if sex is the best thing this world has to offer, then how are we ever going to be happy if we've been hurt so badly by it? See, for those of us who've been hurt and damaged by sex, listen to the good news this morning. Jesus wants to redeem your sexuality. God created it good. Sin has messed it up. And Jesus wants to redeem it. Jesus can heal it. Jesus can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. Jesus can restore what's been lost through sin. He can love you no matter how dirty or damaged or wounded you feel. And his love can cleanse you, can purify you, can exalt you up to the heavens. That's why we sing a song like, nothing but the blood. And if you're new and you're a visitor here, that sounds really crazy when you come in and these people sing about blood this much. (laughs) But we are really happy about it because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from our sins. Jesus right now is making all things new and you can get in on that. He can make you new as well. So we read the text here, we read the scripture and you hear me say, the Bible says the only appropriate fireplace for sex is a covenantal marriage between one man and one woman. I say, yes, absolutely. That's what I am saying and that's what God is saying. Every other sexual action is outside of the fireplace and causes damage to the people involved and to human flourishing as a whole. Now, I realize that you would push back on that maybe. And you say, I don't believe that, Justin. I think sex was made for love. Marriage doesn't really have anything to do with it. And as long as it's two consenting adults, sexual activity is good and it doesn't hurt anyone. So why don't you just get your religion out of the bedroom? Well, I understand that statement and I actually, I would press you and say, I don't actually think you actually believe that statement. I don't think you believe that sex is just made for love and I don't, if if you do, I would ask you, well, what about polygamy? Why limit to two? If it's just about love, why can't multiple people love each other in that way? What about polygamy? Most of us still think polygamy is wrong, but thank God. On what basis? It's consenting adults. Do you have sex with everyone you love? I know you don't. That's crazy. See, I don't really think you believe that. It's one of these cultural truisms that we hear so often. We put it in our back pocket and we say it and we don't actually think about it. Sex was created for a certain type of love. The Bible tells us that type of love is called marital love, covenantal love. And when you say, I think it's fine as long as nobody gets hurt. This is one of the common arguments for pornography. Pornography is often said not to hurt anyone. It's just someone usually these days alone watching a computer. How can that hurt anyone, we think? Well, pornography and the masturbation that often comes with it objectifies humans who have been made in the image of God. It turns subjects into objects, people into things. It removes sex completely from all self-giving love And it turns it into a selfish love, a self-centered love. It's a sexual selfishness that 
scientists are telling us, literally rewires the human brain. It rewires the neural pathways in a human's brain and changes their brain chemistry. And it is a leading motivator in sexual crimes against humanity, including rape and abuse and human trafficking and prostitution and child exploitation. So pornography damages, it does harm to the one using it, and then it changes them in such a way that they usually go out into society and they cause harm to other people. On top of that, the, the revenue alone of the global porn industry is over $100 billion. That money, the money spent on porn could be used to literally eradicate hunger, world hunger, get clean water to every nation on earth, Right? So the, the, this idea that porn doesn't hurt any people is ridiculous. Porn hurts humans. Porn damages and destroys societies. Porn wreaks havoc on human flourishing. Porn is a cultural cancer. Okay, I get it, Justin. Well, what about sex outside of marriage? I mean, what if I'm a serial monogamist person? <laughs> That's the new thing right now. It means I'm dating a person for about a year and, and we're in an exclusive relationship, but then next year I'm with somebody else and somebody else, what about that? Well, let me give you two statistics. One, the number one reason for poverty in our country is single motherhood. When sex outside of marriage results in pregnancy, the man oftentimes does not provide adequately for the child. Add to this, 85% of women who get abortions are unmarried. 85%. See, abortion ends a human life. According to the Guttmacher Institute, 24% of all women in America will have an abortion by the age of 45. That's one in four. Many in this room I know have had, many in this room regret that decision. When 25% of our female population have already had an abortion by the age of 45, let me just say, what does that say about our society? I would say it's proof we are living in a culture of death. Porn, sex outside of marriage, hurts us all. It damages us all. When sex is taken outside of its fireplace, outside of its God-given context of marriage, it brings all kinds of destruction. Now lastly, I've been asked a lot about our desires. Why would God give us desires and then tell us that we can't follow them? What if you have desires to be in a sexual relationship with someone of the same gender? What if you have sexual desires for people other than your spouse? Well, God's word teaches us that we are more than our desires. Now, I would ask you, who told you that your desires were the most true thing about you and that they should be trusted? Why do you believe that? What scientific evidence do you have that proves that following your desires will bring you long-term happiness? It was actually Sigmund Freud who said that we are what we desire. And whatever your desires are, he said, and he taught that they are true and good and you should follow them and to repress them would bring about unhappiness and you'd be unhealthy. Now this, some of this I'm saying for you, some of this I'm saying for your children because this is so ubiquitous on YouTube, this is so ubiquitous on TikTok and Instagram and all the social media and the public schools that are teaching this, that it's just this. You are your desires and freedom is found in following your desires. Now you might believe that. I know many people who do. For them to have sexual desires for the for whoever it is, is the most true thing about them. And to deny them or resist their desires would be to deny their true identity. Well, I'll just tell you, 
Jesus Christ, the one who came and lived for you and died for you, he was the son of God and he promises eternal life with him, he teaches something completely contrary to that. Jesus says in Matthew 5, he makes a radical statement in Matthew 5, he says, whoever looks at a person other than their spouse, spouse with lustful intent has committed adultery in his heart. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't say, follow your heart. He doesn't say, go with your desires. He says, resist it, fight it. He says, you should even go as far as cutting off your hand and gouging out your eyes if you have to. Why? Because following the desires of your heart will lead you to death, destruction, and ultimately hell. That's what Jesus Christ says. Sexual sin will destroy your happiness. It destroys human flourishing in the world and it will bring you to hell if it's not repented of. Why? Listen, you are not the sum total of your desires. You are not defined by your desires. Sinful desires must be resisted and repented of whether they are lustful towards the same sex or opposite sex. It doesn't matter. It's sin. Now you say, oh, there it is. That is sexually repressive and unhealthy, Justin. Well, I think you make a category mistake there. Repressive, maybe. Unhealthy, absolutely not. Gotta be honest here. I desire to eat sugar every meal of the day. I love it. I was raised on Little Debbie, man. <laughs> Donuts, pop, candy, cake, yes and amen. And I'll thank God for it every time I eat it. But that desire will kill me if I don't resist it. That desire must be resisted. It's healthy to resist it. Some of us are born with genetic dispositions toward alcoholism, but we know that desire, the desire towards alcohol, that desire, if we have that disposition, that desire must be resisted as well. We have all kinds of desires that we know must be resisted, right? If I see you driving a nice car, I have a desire for that car. I would like to just take the keys. I must resist that desire. We are not our desires. We are human beings who have been made in the image of God with dignity, value, and worth. But we are fallen. We have been bent and damaged and only God can redeem us and only Christ can make us whole again. God tells us in Genesis that we were created male and female to desire the opposite sex and live in a lifelong union with our spouse. And in Genesis 3, all of creation is fractured with Adam and Eve's sin. And that brought down a curse upon everything. And therefore, listen, there is no aspect of mankind that has not been affected by the fall. What does that mean? First and foremost, it means this. Our sexual desires cannot be trusted. They cannot be trusted. They are fallen. They're bent. Yes, they are real. Yes, they are incredibly powerful. Yes, they can be a force for good in the world and a force for good in your marriage and a force for good in your home. But outside of God's covenant of marriage, they are a force of destruction. But there is something even more true about us, even more powerful than our own desires. And we see this as I close today in Titus chapter 2. Paul says this in Titus chapter 2. He says in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. Now, the grace of God, obviously that's a concept, but that's also a person. Jesus Christ has showed up. And look at this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, bringing healing, bringing redemption, bringing wholeness. What is that going to do? Is it going to save us from our sin? Absolutely. Is it going to forgive us from all of our wrongdoing? Yes. Is it going to give us new life with God and eternal life with God? Yes. But it's also going to do something else. The grace of God is going to do this, training us to renounce ungodliness 
The grace of God in Jesus Christ is going to teach us and train us to walk in his ways and not the ways of the world. Look, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. To live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age. This is how the gospel changes us and empowers us to live differently. While we're doing what? Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. Who's that? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. See, that's the meal. That's the entree. When Jesus Christ shows up and we see the glory of God, that's the entree. Right now, our sexual desires and, and, and our sex, that's just the appetizer. God gives us the fireplace right now. And he's given us, which is the appetizer, and he gives, he's given us the entree when Christ shows up. Who gave himself for us, look, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and look, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. When we receive this grace, this grace of God and Jesus Christ, God gives us a totally new identity. That we now become his children. We are the bride of Christ and Jesus promises to wash, wash us and purify us until we see him again in glory. This is offered to every single person in this room today. Jesus can redeem your past, Jesus can heal your present, and Jesus promises you a glorious future if you'd have him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are gracious. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around this, Lord, that you could see us all the way down and love us all the way down. We are convinced of our brokenness and our sinfulness and we come to you for grace and grace and grace. We thank you for healing us. We thank you for giving us. We thank you for washing us. We thank you for empowering us. And Christians this morning, come to your table, Lord, for an extra measure of that grace today. We come for you to feed us. We know you meet us here in a special way. We know this is a participation in your death and in your life. And so we come this morning to participate in this meal. Jesus, on the night that you were betrayed, you took the bread and you broke it. You said, this is my body broken for you. And you took the cup and you said, this is the cup of the new covenant. This is my blood that will be spilled for you. And so we come to this covenant meal. We come to our heavenly father and also our divine spouse this morning. And we ask that you would continue to do your work in us and on us for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.